Well, welcome everybody to Sex and Ethics. I'm Sharon Lamb and I'm here with Madeline Brode. And this is our first episode of a new podcast called Sex and Ethics. And I'm thinking of a motto. What do you think about come for the sex, but stay for the ethics? I like it a lot. <laughs> good. Will they, though, stay for the ethics? It's good to, like, kind of trick people into staying for the ethics because the sex is, like, what's sexy. And then people have a misunderstanding of what ethics are. They think it's, like, boring and kind of dry. But it actually guides our everyday decision-making. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because if the, if people weren't interested in ethics, how could the whole Me Too movement have gotten started this fall and continued? I mean, that's wrong. I don't believe in that. I can't believe you did that. All that sort of thing, yeah. So we'll just play on that passion about what's right and wrong. And uh, thankfully, I won't define what ethics is today and just hope that everybody kind of knows morals, ethics, values. We don't have to differentiate right now and bring in a little philosophy down the line. And our main question will be, can good sex be good sex? Mm, I think the semantics are tricky for that one. Okay. Can good sex be quote unquote good sex? No, I'm saying good in too sexy a voice, right? Good sex. No. <laughs> good sex. Sex that's ethical. Right. And there are going to be a lot of topics. But first, let me just tell listeners who I am. I've been a researcher and a writer and a psychotherapist, and I work on sex education and sexual development and feminist approaches to victimization and ethics. And I've written two curricula. One is called Sexual Ethics for a Caring Society Curriculum. That's the sex. And Habit, Humane Acts Bystander Intervention Training, where we try to get college students to intervene in sketchy sexual situations because they have some intuitive sense that what's going on is sketchy. Uh, sex and ethics, combining those two, have been my thing. And now, all of a sudden, with Me Too, um, everyone seems to be thinking that boys need some ethics education, right? You agree? Yeah, everyone you needs you education, but I'm okay with it focusing on boys for right now. <laughs> <laughs> but what's ethics? It's not how to behave. It's not manners. I mean, and we're going to be doing an episode on consent down the line, maybe a few episodes on that, because it's ask first sounds a little bit too much like manners than about ethics. And That's a good tease for an upcoming episode. I'll keep everyone in. Thank you. Thank you. And we'll talk about what's right, what's just, what's caring, what's mutual, and apply that to sex. But first, why don't you introduce yourself? Oh, goodness. So I'm a doctoral student at UMass Boston. My dissertation focuses, focuses on how culture and sexual assault kind of relate to each other. But I've been working as a clinician for several years, and I've done research with a variety of professors. I think that's good enough. I'm terrible at talking about myself. Yeah, we've known each other for like four or five years now, and I basically thought that the cool dresses you wear would play well <laughs> over the year. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone can see my dress right now. I know that's how audio podcast work for sure and if I ever lose track of what to say I'll just start describing the bright colors and the pretty bows and snaps and whistles and things like that but I just thought that when Madeline's not available I'll bring in some other students because that's the youth perspective <laughs> and also just because they're all smarter than I am both of those are not true you're talking like you're ancient and you're not well can you speak a little bit more to your coolness though 
I don't I don't know what defines my coolness. I'm just very aggressively me, and I guess that makes me cooler. It, I think that is cool. Uh, be aggressively you. Yeah. Be best. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so also Madeline's doing a dissertation on rape culture, which I thought would be a good topic for our first podcast. And I think it's just so important that we tease apart what we're comfortable with about that phrase and what we're not, that we're going to do many podcasts on that one. So why are we doing sex and ethics? Do you know that podcast where there are two women talking about the people they had sex with? Guys, we fucked? Yeah. Yeah. Are we allowed to say, don't have, I'm not. Okay, sorry. Take that away. I'm, I'm a professor. I'm going to curse up a blue storm. <laughs> I am a professor. I am in the basement of Healy Library at the Jewel on the Sea called UMass Boston. And I think that I have to keep up my disguise of professionalism throughout this. So we'll let her curse and I'll be saying ladylike things like frickin'. Okay. I mean, okay. Like, I'll help us meet our swear quota to be cool. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, that's awesome. Okay, so what was the name of that podcast again? Guys, we fucked. Okay, so just for a moment there, it sounds like fun. It sounds like something I would really like to hear about. Do you think it's ethical? I think it's tricky. So they've had episodes where both they've invited the person they've had sex with to come on and they've talked about it without the person there, with it being like more anonymous. And I feel like the the episodes where there's the person who's invited in, I feel like much more ethically comfortable with, right? Because there's a kind of implicit like understanding of informed consent. It's not an ambush, like, surprise, where you brought out microphones type of thing. So the guy didn't know what they were going to bring up. I presume just one of them uh, did it with him, not both. No, multiple times, because when they started the podcast, they were single. Oh. So there was multiple guys who were on initially. Oh, okay. So, but they did they both experience the same guy ever, so they were comparing and contrasting? I don't believe so. Okay, so the guy's there, and he's they don't, he doesn't know what they're going to say, and she's like, that was really weird when you did X or something like that? Yeah, it seems like <laughs> it. I mean, at least he knew that they were going to like talk about what their sexual interactions were. Yeah, but that's awesome that he's getting such good feedback, This right? is true. I feel like if more men got that kind of feedback, there would be more satisfied humans around. But it's kind of like course evaluations, like oh at the goodness. end, that only the, only the people that you people who really didn't like you in class are going to like speak up and fill out the evaluations, right? They don't bring in guys and say, you are awesome. Do they? They have, yeah. Oh, they have? Oh, yeah. That's cool. So I think for most of the episodes, it's been like a mix of like positive and negative for both parties, which I think is really refreshing because it's not ever in sexual situations like one person is 100% right or 100% ethical or 100% good and the other is the opposite yeah. of those things. So and so when they have sex with people now, do the people know that they do a podcast on that too? So that they know when they give their consent to have sex with this person, this guy is also giving consent to be talked about anonymously. <laughs> yes. Uh, I think they've mentioned on the podcast before that that's part of their like dating shtick now is that they have to like get consent from the person who they're dating is like, hey, this is a thing that I do. Like, are you actually OK with this? Can I mention your name on the podcast? And I believe one of them is in a relationship now. So obviously that kind of complicates things. There's like kind of an ongoing negotiation as to like what is allowed to be talked about and what is not. <laughs> that sounds great. I think that's probably a really good model for ongoing consent. Absolutely. Then, right? Right. So and do they reinforce any Stereotypes. I think I would worry about that. Like, are they always talking about size? Yeah, they, there are some gender role things that make me feel uncomfortable sometimes about like what people should or shouldn't do on dates or what a male or a woman 
a man or a woman should do on dates that doesn't always feel good but I feel like they're always like constantly evolving and growing which is what I think I like about the podcast because they're relatively open about like I'm not the expert on this I'm just talking about like my experience yeah that's cool um right. they do give advice on the show which I think is cool I listened back to an earlier episode and I see how their advice has changed over time based on feedback and interaction with their audience, which I think is also a part of ethics. It's not like a, a static kind of thing. It's something that you grow and learn from. Mm, yeah, I like that. I mean, I guess that depends on whose ethics you're talking about, whether it's something more fluid and something you figure out or whether there are absolute rules that come down on high and you should never break them. And as a feminist, I would say there are some absolute <laughs> No, I agree. Just, maybe there are, yeah. But it doesn't sound like they break them. And I, there's something about when things are hilarious, I just give so much ethical wiggle room. Yeah. I, I've always worried about when there's been too much like, oh, you know, I, I don't like that joke kind of thing when I say, well, some jokes just fail, you know, give them another chance. I, I don't know. So please, uh, ethical wiggle room for us. Yes, to, please. We're going to fail once in a while too. Anyway, I also like about that show before we move on, I think that it's it sort of undoes the locker room thing because like, mm. in our society, there's a tradition of men talking about women in the locker room and making comparisons, usually about their performance and sort of thing. And it's kind of like reverses it like the women are doing the locker room talk. Not that locker room talk is great, but I like that subversiveness about it. I agree. Okay, good. I'm glad. See, we agree. Okay, we're off and running then. So all sex, all anything has an ethical dimension. And uh, how are we going to bring the hilarity to rape culture? That will be hard. <laughs> no? Okay. So Madeline, are you ready to define for the listening public mm -hmm. what rape culture is? So my definition is how like society feels entitled to women's bodies and the relationship between that entitlement and feeling like it's okay to engage in some kind of violence towards women. So the idea is that our society really focuses how sexualized violence is part of the norm for women, that it's expected and that there's no way that you can escape it and you always have to devote some of your mental space towards being concerned about it. So looking at the ways that that is experienced by women, but also how it's internalized by them, I think is what I define as rape culture. Wow, yeah. I think if I keep in my mind that word entitlement, I'm going to be able to sort of figure out why, what makes me comfortable and what makes me uncomfortable with that. And I guess one of the first things is if it's in the culture, it feels like we're all responsible and we're all enablers. I mean, do you believe that really? Like we're all responsible? I believe that we're all responsible. I feel like there's people who have more ownership over the need to change rather than others. So I, I'm going to relate this. <laughs> huh. Go ahead. Oh, no. <laughs> Look, we found the hilarity. <laughs> yes. So they're more responsible for, for certain people to change. So I was having a conversation with a friend about racism recently. And one of my friends was talking about how, about a friend's problematic art project about like black fathers. And he is a white father. And he was not understanding why that was like difficult or a problem. I was talking about it with a white woman and my friend who is Dominican and me and we got into an argument about like whose responsibility it is to dismantle white privilege because there's a certain responsibility of white people to use their privilege to actually like do something positive to dismantle the system and that 
people of color are often overburdened with the need to fix and like become like an expert resource. But my friend who is a uh, Dominican got really upset with me. He's like, you're shutting me out of this conversation. Yeah, yeah, I was going there. Go ahead, keep going. Um, and I was I'm not trying to shut you out of the conversation. I'm just looking at like who was responsible for the amount of emotional work in this and who gets to opt out and when. And so my thing is who does the work? Why do they do that work? And are they allowed some agency to opt in or out of that over the course of time. So with rape culture, I feel like in this situation, women aren't allowed to opt in or out of it as much as men are. So I do feel like men have some more responsibility in my ethical system to dismantle the system of rape culture, but that women deserve an equal contribution because it affects them the most. Whoa. Okay. Well, that sort of means that I guess I'm trying to figure out how is it that men can opt out? Um, because if it's the culture and if it's, forget that phrase, that, you know, it's the water we swim in or something mm -hmm. like that, and it's just there, aren't we all just swimming in it? How are they opting out? I think it's not so much opting out of, like, being influenced by the culture, but opting in or out of having to have discussions about it or to change it. So mm. I feel that opting out is to use our wonderful president's bus conversation with Billy Bush. Billy Bush, like, <laughs> co-signing everything that he was saying. Wait, can I just say Billy Bush bus <laughs> okay, just going to go Billy the Bush BBB in the Billy Bush bus conversation. Um, okay. So I feel like Billy Bush was opting out yeah. at that moment because he wasn't challenging. He didn't appear to be uncomfortable. I obviously don't know yeah, what his and internal so he, state is. Uh, he totally deserves to lose his job over that and have the other guy be president. No, okay, we won't go there. I was. We're at a public institution. We cannot say anything bad about yeah, yeah, about okay. our about no. Forty five. Just saying. I, there's some discrepancy there okay. with what happened with their careers. Right. So I don't think Billy Bush is like, or President Trump is totally out of rape culture, but it's more just Billy Bush made in that moment the choice to not challenge it or to not have a conversation about it. And that's the kind of opting in or out I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. Do you kind of believe that if we if we constantly have conversations, though, about little uh, expressions of entitlement, that it will change rape culture that it will change and what parts of I mean not rape culture that it will stop rape I mean will it stop rape to deal with the little things on a consistent basis I think so because I think there's a momentum that has to happen with a lot of social change there has to be ongoing kind of conversation and in contemporary society it's not rape is out in the open it's starting to become more in the open but there's a lot of people who still use whisper networks who are really private about their experiences of assault because of this negative repercussion what's a whisper network oh that's um, a whisper <laughs> network is a bunch of people who are warning other people about this one predator in or perpetrator in a social circle. So for example, let's say I'm friends with like eight people and there's one person in that group of people who is inappropriate with people. So all the seven other people would warn me about that one other person. Okay, but they wouldn't directly the confront <laughs> that, that person. Oh, great ethical question. Yeah. Because there's some right and there's some wrong in there, isn't there, right? Mm -hmm. You don't want to judge people who are in a certain circumstance where they might lose their job to confront that person. But now we have a whole group and and sort of that safety in numbers. And a whole group seems to be protecting the predator as well as the potential rape victim. Yeah. 
I feel really ethically messy about this because I know I know I have participated in whisper networks. I have been like, hey, like psh, 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 I wouldn't recommend being drunk around this person or whatever. But it definitely and Sharon, you know this, but the listeners don't know this that I'm like pretty aggressive and confrontational when I feel like something's inappropriate in a lovely way. And I I usually start out by like in the most loving way, like, please knock that the fuck off. But I feel really stuck because oftentimes there's power relationship in that choice. Mm-hmm to not do something like that. So I know I have friends who are in the comedy community and they started a Facebook page for women in comedy and they essentially started a whisper network about their male co-workers and that Facebook page got taken down. Someone was sued and then some people lost a bunch of gigs because they created this community for themselves and even that wasn't allowed. So if that's the environment that we're living in where even women trying to get together and help each other and be supportive to each other ends up getting dismantled because one person felt like it was inappropriate I feel stuck because there's so much to be so much cost as being a whistleblower or the person who confronts others. Yeah, yeah. And you gave a great example of how they actually did something together publicly to confront and that it backfired. Well, I don't think we can use one example, though, for that, though, to say that. And the question with ethics isn't what did you do, but what should you do? Not what would you do, not how hard it is to do something, Mm -hmm. but what should you do? So let's just take that for a minute and just sort of say if you're in a network, a whisper network. I'm going to use that now of 10 really awesome women you trust and you're in solidarity with. And you all know this guy is a predator. You can say the kind that just sort of waits for somebody to get drunk and you know he's going to lead them off or something like that. And hopefully the audience all know, <laughs> listening audience knows who we're talking about, that kind of person. Isn't it great to sidebar right now? Isn't it great that we're no longer thinking of rapists as men who jump out from bushes? Oh, I love that. Although I feel it depends on who you're talking to, because I'm sure you've had this experience at parties where people say some ignorant stuff after they you explain what you do. Yeah, that's not a rape rape or something like that, yeah. right? Yeah. So like I met a friend of a friend probably like a year ago, but it was so shocking that I didn't even know what to do. I, I met her. I shook her hand. She's like, what do you do? And I was like, I'm in training to be a psychologist. And she was, what do you study? And I was like, sexual assault. She goes, well, let me tell you about this one story of this woman who lied. And I was like, good God. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, it happens, right? It doesn't have... <laughs> You know, take away no. the you know, 99% true rape. Yeah. Real rapes that happened. Oh, you probably don't even like that I say real rape. I have problems with yeah. it, but that wasn't my intake of breath. My intake of breath was just remembering that conversation because it was so yeah. difficult. I agree that the ball is rolling and there's less people having those kind of beliefs about raped by someone who pops out of the bushes. But So, well, let's get back to I was asking, should you? Should you, should you do more than Whisper Network? And I suppose it's always contextual. Mm-hmm. It's like weighing what the costs are, as you said, for yourself or for other people in the solid. Because when you're in solidarity with somebody else in terms of whistleblowing, you have to consider what kind of position it puts them in, too. And that's a lot of people to care about, too. Yeah. And I agree with you. I think one thing, though, that I don't want to discount is that I think engaging in the Whispered Network is a form of taking action. It's much more passive, obviously, but inviting someone else into the Whisper Network obviously like protects someone else. And I do think that's an ethical choice. Mm-hmm. And that's the ethic of care. Yeah. You know, an ethic of justice might say that you need to speak up for those people who aren't in your network, too. But, of course, it's much, much harder to do that. Well, I'm really glad to have learned about Whisper uh, Networks. It seems like that would be a 
really great kind of exercise to talk about in a, a sex ed program in Absolutely. high schools, too. we got to start a new curriculum. So back to rape culture and wondering about this. So in the middle of last year, I drive uh, some other time. I'll talk about why I'm in the car constantly. But <laughs> when I was, I start daydreaming and getting in this kind of liminal state and thinking about the work we do. And I started thinking about rape culture as kind of parallel to microaggressions. And so I called up Madeline, and she was in class. And so I left her like a 15-minute um, voice message because a therapist or something, you have voice messages that can go on and on forever, which I don't think she ever listened to. I did listen to it. How dare. <laughs> but it was really about this sort of idea of the little things and how easier it is to focus on the little things and my fear that that it isn't a continuum, that the small entitlements that, I don't know how to say it, everyday guys, I don't want to call them good guys, or I'm also, I didn't say this earlier, I'm a mother of sons, so I'm a little bit protective of boys sometimes, but the sort of everyday things they do that express that entitlement, they it contributes to an atmosphere that permits other people to not get punished for the rapes they mm -hmm. commit. But it gives the impression that it's a continuum for any single person that your little acts are similar to because they're on a continuum with the big act of rape. And that's where I kind of, I don't know if I'm explaining that right. Do you understand what I mean? Yeah. It's not a, the continuum isn't an individual one. It's a continuum for society, right? I I agree. The struggle that I have with the idea of microaggressions is connecting that to the larger thing. Because for me, it intuitively makes sense. But I don't know if that's just the like zeitgeist that I grew up in. But it does feel weird to compare, I don't know, somewhat benevolent sexism of like you holding a door open for me in a weird way to someone having sex with me against my will. That's confusing, I think. Yes. That's exactly what I'm going for. And also, I, it's the same sort of thing that turns off, I'm speaking for all white, but it turns off me. And I microaggress because we all do it sometime or other. You mm -hmm. can't be that perfectly aware to then sort of assume I'm as horrible as some white supremacist. That's the kind of jump that I feel in race politics today that happens around that. And I, I also don't want that for boys, that because you participate in an entitlement culture and benefit from that doesn't make you a rapist, but hey, take a look at this. How are you going to change your behavior for good mm -hmm. rather than evil? Take responsibility for the little things that might help. I think the thing that I struggle with with this is that I do feel like I'm racist. I'm trying to actively not be racist in the example, but like I am racist. I do say things that are like inappropriate. There was a conversation with a client. I mis mixed up two famous black comedians and I felt really embarrassed yeah. about it. But like yeah. that is, I'm, I'm steeped in racism as a white person and there's nothing I can do about it. And I don't have a problem with that because I'm trying to actively become yeah, less see, racist. Yeah, I mean, I, no, I, I understand that. And I think we're all sexist too. I mean, I've said, I've said embarrassingly gender stereotypes stereotyped things after 30 years of work in mm -hmm. this area. God, I just feel that going to rape anybody. Just don't think I'm going to accidentally do that because of that. And I might say something that might support that, but I'll say 10 other things that don't. And somehow that's how I'm feeling. That's how I'm feeling about wanting to be careful around the Me Too stuff, which we'll talk about some other time, and that whole rape culture continuum. Because as you said, certain people have more responsibility to be looking at themselves and how they're contributing and I infer 
heard that you meant men. And I think that to have them take more responsibility is not to sort of poke a finger in their face and say, you potential rapist, you. Right? No, that's not my intention. I just, I wish that... I wasn't blaming you. I know it's not no. yours. It's just that sort of rape culture thing sometimes feels that way. Yeah, and I don't think it's possible to make it not feel slightly uncomfortable. Because <laughs> I, I really appreciate how we've used like race as an analogy for this, because yeah. I feel like it's very similar. Because there's this very male privilege and white privilege operate in a very similar way. Yeah, I think we've lost all the hilarity of the conversation now. Though, That's I mean, it's serious, possible. serious yeah. stuff. And so basically, we'll start out every podcast joking about sex and ethics. And, and then, then we'll devolve into dismantling the entire system. <laughs> yeah, staring at each other with a hopeless look on our face saying, and now what? one episode at a time. Yeah. So is there anything we need to do to conclude this? Because I do think we need to go away and think more about rape culture and how do we... I, mean, I totally agree that there is such a thing as rape culture. And I mm-hmm. think I agree with calling it that too. That, that name's been around for a long time and we want to honor our foremothers. Yeah. <laughs> Especially the day after Mother's Day. And we'll, but we'll, we want to talk about how do you do that social justice action work around that so that it's not that kind of finger pointing thing and that, and that it's like disrespecting what rape is and what it does to people mm-hmm. by comparing it to somebody saying the wrong word at some time. And those are, that's the continuum. We want to be working at all levels of it. Maybe that's, the yeah, thing. I think working at all levels is important. And there there's a both and thing here that I feel like it's important to be working both on the small, smaller examples and like the larger issue of rape, that it's not like we have to just work on one side or the other and that we should work to make people feel invited in rather than blamed or persecuted. Mm-hmm. When you just sort of say, I'm just sort of thinking about myself and out there in the world, and I'm not going to be the person to say, you're participating in rape culture when you say that. If I hear somebody say some kind of rape myth, which we haven't gone over, but I think the world all knows what a rape myth is. They come from the 1970s where people used to even date. Like, if you buy a woman dinner, then she owes you. It gets translated into a modern way, Mm -hmm. but it's still a myth that that's something of owing. When if somebody makes a joke about that, I think I would rather make a joke back about that that points out the absurdity of it. But I do think also that pointing out those that what those myths do in some in some way is the best way to approach it. And when you believe those things, it kind of helps juries down the line let rapists go free. Just saying. And I think it's possible to have like fun with social change. It's not you have to blame me and say like you're a horrible, awful person because like that person's probably not. They're just operating in a way that they didn't know was harmful to another person. Yeah, or unjust too. Or unjust. Right. But I think it's possible to invite humor into it. So I had a client be taken off of my caseload recently and we were talking about why and this person experiences psychosis spectrum experiences and the psychiatrist made an offhand mention that she was concerned about being attacked by a lesbian and I was like, whoa, that's that's a lot for me to take in. So what I decided to do, because I felt that there 
there was some microaggressions going on there, I said, oh, I'm sure my haircut didn't help. Um, Because, listeners, I have a gay haircut. Um, Now you have to explain what a gay haircut is. Uh We don't even have listeners yet, and already I'm picturing the letters coming in. I think it's the haircut that you would see on someone who shops at Wild Fang and reads Autostraddle. It's short on one side, long on the other. Autostraddle. I think we can get a commercial from them now, right? I, I don't know if they have commercial money. They're for lesbian and trans women. They're probably just as broke as we are. Alrighty then. I think that humor is a great way to do that. It also, the humor also takes away the shame because when people mm-hmm. are called out, and I love that phrase called in because uh, I got the name of the person who wrote that blog about calling in, but we use it all the time now. It's really just about saying, I want to talk with you more. I want to dialogue with you, not like you bad. Yes. <laughs> but you know, when you shame people, we know as psychologists, Absolutely. when you shame people, they run and hide. Yes. But when you tell them what they could do differently or something, or just sort of get in dialogue with them, like, you know, when you say that rape mythic supporting of, you know, what happens in juries, you mm-hmm. know how many rapists get off and that sort of thing, uh, do a little bit of time compared to other crimes, then you're in dialogue with them and everything goes well. And it's- yeah. And what I like about those models is that it assumes positive, not negative intent, not necessarily positive. It assumes like someone isn't purposely trying to be upsetting or rude or harmful or unjust in that moment, which I think is really helpful remembering not to come across aggressively. Or Yeah, I'm kind of a hate the sin and, and love the sinner kind Absolutely. of person. However, I, I would like some time to do an episode about what is character? Are we only just our behaviors? And does character really change? And are there good characters or bad characters, especially when we talk about people? We've thrown around the word predator lightly today. We all know what that means. But is that person just behaving badly? Or is there some characterological thing that's going on? So I think delving into the light topic of how human change happens could be very good. (laughs) Well, this has been an awesome conversation with you, Madeline Brote, (laughs) today. I hope that we will have more of these conversations in the future Mm -hmm. about things like consent. And and you want to brainstorm a little bit about what our future episodes might include? I really liked, in the back of my head, I was thinking about the rape joke conversation that you mentioned because I have a lot of thoughts and feelings about it and I think it could be really interesting to see how like we we differ are the same that could be cool before I put my perspective on rape jokes out there for the listening public I have to win them over and they have to think of me as characterologically a good person before I say which rape jokes I kind of like yeah I mean I also kind of like some rape jokes but I have some rules in my head as to why oh I can't wait to hear them okay so that'll be a future episode but pretty soon we have to talk about consent because we've been doing in our, our research lab, we're in a research lab with five awesome women. And one of the things we're doing is looking at consent campaigns and the ridiculously high standards people have for enthusiastic, uh, very positive sexual experiences. And we're more of the uh, ambivalent sex is okay. We like consent, but you know you don't have to throw everything into the bag. And we like a little more than consent. Consent's kind of like a low bar. So yeah. we'll be talking about what else to have in the mix to have good quote good unquote good not good (laughs) good noble (laughs) ethical sex 
Yes. Yeah. Good. Which when we talk about it, it is actually much more exciting than we're making it <laughs> seem right now. <laughs> I think like good sex in the way that like Sharon and I are talking about the most enjoyable sex because you're getting what you want and you're making sure what your partner is getting what they want. Yeah. And you're connecting. Yeah. Connecting. Ooh, that was a good <laughs> teaser. We're just making it sound so sexy. Connecting is sexy. I'm just laughing because I was in a recent research team meeting. I was the only one arguing for relational connecting being something that works towards desirable sex or feeling desire in sex. This is true. We can talk about that too. We can have a whole thing about casual sex too and whether it can be ethical. I just sort of wanted to put out there that you don't have to be in a loving relationship to have ethical sex. I agree. Okay. We agree. Let's just end. Yeah. We agree. And this is our first episode of Sex and Ethics. Thanks to the listeners for listening in. And uh, look forward to presenting interesting, ethical, and philosophical, and, well, I guess I'm tired of philosophy <laughs> discussions <laughs> over, the, um, over the next few months and longer. Okay? Yeah. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.